0: Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Emma Bezik. Emma is a nutritional therapist with a specialism in nutrigenomics and is the co-founder of Lifecode GX. We dive into stress and anxiety, looking at how our genetics play a crucial role in these conditions and how we can help identify potential therapeutics to help with them. So, without further ado, Emma, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ben. I'm <laughs> delighted
0: to be here. It is great to have you on, finally. Um, and I recently spoke to Yale on the Yale Joff, on the, on yeah. the fun- Functional Health Podcast. Hopefully I pronounced the name right. I'm sorry, Yale. Um, and I'm really excited to speak to you just to span, expand on the topic of nutrigenomics, right? Uh, but to kick things off, you're a nutritional therapist, but you really specialized in genetics and how our nutrition interacts with our our own biology Uh, what attracted you specifically into this space?
1: So my background is data, um, which sounds very, very dull. Um, but I worked for many years in financial services Mm -hmm. and my job was very much about data analysis and how to take boring old numbers and statistics And convert them into something meaningful and usable and and useful and when I studied nutrition and came across genomics and nutrigenomics my initial attraction I must say was that hey this is a ton of data Um, it's familiar to me as as an idea and what about all the things that you could do with it And in terms of interpreting it and and making it meaningful um, and having that visualization of the data. Um, So, that I guess was to start with a a way that I could see of merging my old life and experience and skill set with my new or interest that I was going to adopt going forward Mm um and bring it all together Um, but i must admit over the years i've i've very much recognized the limitations of data alone and the proportion of the the usefulness of of the data in terms of their layers you could think about like a cake not very nutrition friendly but (laughs) a cake (laughs) and and the data is like the bottom layer and then it's all the things that come on top of that and around it that that are important um, for for getting to the bottom of people's illness or helping them to optimize their health. Um, it's the softer skill stuff around it, uh, the gut feel um, and the experience of the practitioner mm-hmm. as well that, that really, really brings it all together. Um, but I... I think starting with the data, having that in the mix, um, is actually quite vital.
0: That's yeah. hugely interesting with regards to using data, because you've essentially used your background, um, as it to apply it to nutrition, um, yeah. which is awesome. Did you find when you went into nutrigenomics, uh, specific, I guess, SNPs or genetic variant variations for yourself, which you were like, where it was a surprise.
1: So um, when I started off, I did 23andMe, which people will probably have heard of um, as a huge direct-to-consumer genetic testing company. And so that provided me with a good start point, I would say. But the criticism or one of the criticisms of that is you get a ton of data, how much of it is useful? Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people, you know, probably spend no more than a couple of hours looking at their results, going, that was interesting, you know, what proportion Spanish or, or, or Russian or Irish am I? And then have a little glance read the health stuff to see if there's anything really standing out or bad. And then Yeah, that's the bad it. stuff
0: and... is what people focus on, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they really do. They really do. I guess I guess from my perspective I didn't really pick it up at that point, Um, but the things that have helped me the most and that have stood out for me the most are around anxiety. Mm. And um, GABA, I don't think I'd even heard of GABA until a few years ago, but GABA, the calming neurotransmitter, and basically how my system responds to that or doesn't respond to it very well. Um, and there is a gene involved in in that system. Um, that even just one gene and one small alteration in the genetic code that impacts that gene can have very very big effects on people's risk of developing anxiety disorders. And just having that, you know, people go, mm, they're always a bit kind of nervous aren't they all shaky around that and i felt that was definitely me and i felt that was my personality yeah Um, and it stopped me doing things you know it stopped me uh public speaking for example i was i would melt down um if i if i was put in a situation where i had to speak i would physically shake and sweat my voice would quaver and then i'd feel even more anxious about looking anxious and it was this really vicious cycle um but i didn't i had no idea why um and my dad's like it as well so i and my grandfather i had seen them at various points in my life and kind of recognized this trait um, and when i when i did the analysis for our tests and did the research around neurotransmitters the GABA system was just red all over. It was so <laughs> right. dramatically. Yeah, yeah, just like, oh, okay. And the most important thing about finding that out and discovering it is being able to support it and get over it and manage that problem. Um, and I think knowing yourself is such a powerful aspect of this Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um if you know yourself then you can start to support yourself um in a way that is working with the genes rather than conflicting with them um and I genuinely feel as I sit here to you in front of you (laughs) talking to you I know it's online um but I genuinely feel comfortable public speaking now and I never thought I would have been able to say that um five years ago i would have run a mile so
0: i mean that's really really interesting because a lot of people will think like well that may be a learned trait having that level of anxiety or maybe you've not practiced a certain thing and it's just practice makes perfect a lot of people will say you just need to do public speaking more in order to get better at it what would you say is more important the kind of biochemistry or just the, the actual practical element
1: i think it's all of it um so for example uh, for me i experienced it when i was very young so even at school if i had to speak in a classroom i would blush i'd go really red in the face i would find it really embarrassing to mm-hmm. draw attention to myself and then i studied music and i had performance anxiety and exam anxiety when I had to play mm-hmm. in a in a music exam, let alone perform um, it in a you know on stage. And I was actually advised by my music teacher to take beta blockers because it was so bad, and they felt that it was holding me back and that I was not realizing and not um, not benefiting from something that I was actually quite good at but just that performance aspect of it was really really holding me back so I knew it was something quite innate um, but I do feel looking back that the trait was almost made worse because it was traumatic to be anxious and be aware of that anxiety and be uncomfortable with it And then you anticipate the anxiety Mm -hmm. and a small thing becomes reinforced in a negative way. Um, But then when I finally understood, and it was a combination of the genetics and an awareness around nutrition as well, you know, some things that are, are common knowledge, but you still do them like caffeine. Yes. So why would I have caffeine When I knew that I was going to have to go and speak publicly and I already, because of this anxiety, knew that my adrenaline was going to go bombing up Mm -hmm. through the roof. Um, Why would I choose optionally to have three cups of coffee beforehand? I have plenty of dopamine and adrenaline and all those chemicals spinning around the system anyway, but I still went and had more (laughs) because you know I should have known better but I still kept doing the wrong thing and and it's kind of well what what is it for people that that actually makes them acknowledge the problem Mm. and hone in on it rather than just keep pushing it pushing it away or avoiding facing up to it um and for me that's where the genetics it was it was black and white actually, or it was red in my case, the report. It was like, look at this, red for danger. This is where you need to focus. Um, so so yeah, and then to support it, um, you know, it's nutrigenomics. So the idea of all these things is that they can be supported by nutrition and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's not about finding out something that you're stuck with and you can't action that you can't resolve or support in any way it's not your destiny yes Um, not
0: determinant yeah i I mean i always i know you're saying that they came up in red and that almost seems negative and it kind of is but almost quite empowering because you can do something about it right definitely Um, i'm just thinking of how many people are in that vicious cycle which you've just explained very very well um of maybe even you know sleep deprived and therefore power themselves with caffeine but then make the anxiety worse and sleep de- yeah. deprivation would have done that anyway and it's just yeah. that vicious cycle and they, they really can't get themselves out of it unless you take a step back and recuperate um yeah. so yeah, yeah fascinating so how did you support that in particular GABA that calming neurotransmitter So
1: um the Part of it was reducing anti nutrients, mm-hmm. I would say, so I thought I was healthy um i I did a lot of running, and I used running as a calming thing, yeah oh, I thought I did it It was kind of like my mental health fix, really um and I thought I ate reasonably well yeah. um. But actually, my running was quite extreme. I was hyper competitive, not in a club sort of way, but if I was out running and I could hear someone gaining ground coming towards me, I'd step it up and I'd be, ter- be determined not to let them overtake me. I mean, that's <laughs> another, I like back on it and go, what was like, what was going on there? <laughs> like, just these kind of odd behaviors, like hyper competitive nurse um but also I was doing I was I was I was having a lot of tea actually Mm -hmm. more than coffee but I was probably having like like literally a constant drip of tea like constantly like 12 big through the day so I was actually having a lot of caffeine yeah um and I was working in a corporate job and going out straight after work and drinking loads of alcohol And, you know, we could talk about alcohol at length, but I think the key point for me is that it's an anti-nutrient. So it uses up all your B vitamins, lots of minerals, lots of antioxidants, all get hugely depleted by processing the alcohol. And actually, what do you need to make GABA? You need B vitamins, um, you need magnesium, you need zinc. You need protein as well. And a big problem, usually behind chemical imbalances, biochemical imbalances is, as you know, nutrition um, or nutrient insufficiency. Um, And then there's the genes on top of that. So if my gene results told me that actually it wasn't about not enough GABA, But it was about how well I sensed the GABA, how sensitive my system is to GABA being present and the fact that it was less sensitive. So if I had a normal amount of GABA, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: then I wouldn't feel it as much. It wouldn't do as much in terms of calming me down. So even if my nutrition was okay and I had all the raw ingredients to make the GABA, it, it probably isn't enough for me, Yeah. even though it might be enough for most people mm-hmm. to feel it. Um, and guess what substance um, interacts with GABA receptors just like GABA does or very closely to how GABA does, alcohol. It's like a perfect fit. So when we talk about receptors, mm-hmm. we talk about a key and a lock. And the lock is the receptor. And for me, my variance was on my GABA receptor gene. And it's as if the GABA doesn't fit as well in it. So it's not really giving you that, that benefit. Um, but alcohol fits in that lock in a very similar way. So that's why people with that genotype actually use alcohol to calm themselves down because
0: it's like a GABA substitute wow Um, okay uh, really open my eyes there because that that is something which um i mean i was going to say i speculate that that would be the case because um i've seen just a lot of people and know a lot of people that have anxiety and kind of numb it with alcohol on occasion Mm -hmm. right so maybe after a hard day's work you've ramped up And then people will reach for the glass of wine or whatever without actually supporting themselves with maybe adequate nutrition, right? And that's actually exacerbating the issue in the long term.
1: Yeah, definitely it is. And it means that with receptors as well, you build up tolerance. So the amount of alcohol that would give you that calm Mm -hmm. is no longer effective enough. So instead of one glass, you need two to have the same benefit or the same effect. Um, and so you can see how that easily becomes a problem for people. Um, where actually you know the the way to fix it is to look at well what are the other substitutes? how can you support your gaba in a positive way? Um, you know what's what 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 nutrition do you need? Oh sorry. We can attention, pause this, please we? attention,
0: please. This is the test of the fire and voice alarm system. <laughs> Might just keep this there in. There is no for... need
1: to take that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ever so calm about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, in,
1: so in terms of then, how do you, if you recognise that you're in this situation and this is this is the dynamic that is happening, Mm -hmm. how do you break out of it? Um, And so the recognition is the first thing. It's kind of going, okay, this is where it's going wrong. Mm -hmm. It was a weak point always from day zero when I was born onwards, this was a part of my personality, really. Um, So, But then understanding actually this explains a lot of it. It's not going to be the whole picture because one gene is never the whole picture, but it certainly explained a a, a significant aspect of that to me. Um, and then it is kind of like, okay, why um, or what can you do about it? So part of it is analyzing big stuff, and part of it is zoning in on the detail. So the detail is in many ways the easy bit if you've done nutrition, uh, education, and study, and you've looked at biochemistry. So you can look at the pathways, and this is what we do that is different um, to other companies as well in LifeCode. We look at pathways, and we present genes in the context of pathways and systems, Mm -hmm. and show these are the ingredients, nutritional ingredients, chemicals that are needed to support these pathways. So in other words, how do you make GABA? Um and how is GABA broken down? So how can you naturally support your GABA levels? So for me, I need more. I need slightly more. Um and I need it to be pretty consistent so I don't want to fall off the wagon in terms of my GABA support. Um so it's B vitamins, especially B6, and zinc. Um, my zinc levels, when I have done blood tests and when I did blood tests at that time, my zinc levels were through the floor, which is concerning for a whole range of reasons. But it was a real standout result because most of the markers were in in a in a very good optimal range. Right. But my zinc was was rubbish so that was really letting me down in terms of making GABA. um so that's like okay clue number one fix the zinc (laughs) um you know and for a whole lot of a lot of reasons as well but you know if i fix it for that reason and Mm. yeah yeah exactly um and then you can do some really nice things actually to inhibit GABA from being broken down and removed
0: just to focus on the zinc a a second did you realize why that was the case why you were deficient in it because if you said your diet was good I'm wondering if it was more plant-based and therefore maybe it was the not necessarily the intake but the the form it was it that bio bio bioavailable I
1: think it I think it it was so I wasn't I was eating plants but I would say that I've always had quite a mixed diet in terms of I do eat do eat animal produce yes um but perhaps my digestion wasn't so good in those days either and so my absorption ability probably wasn't that good but I don't really know to be honest it's a good question and there's always new things to go and investigate um I don't really know why it stood out as being so low why it was such an outlier yeah Um, I mean the
0: reason why I ask is because a lot of people pair animal products with plant products with anti- that have anti-nutrients in it I mean one thing I used yeah. to do was eat a lot of raw spinach which I don't do anymore but like massively high in oxalates and then I used to do that all the time and same with nuts and things of that nature and then when I tested it was like some clear markers that those uh, anti-nutrients were blocking nutrient absorption certainly yeah. certainly mineral absorption Um, so yeah. that, that's why I asked actually
1: yeah no and it is a really interesting point because again people believe that they're doing the healthy good thing Mm -hmm. and they are in a generic way yes but it might not be right for them or the timing might not be right or the combinations of foods might not be right and there's so many moving parts to this aren't there it's no wonder that even as a nutritional therapist you don't have all the answers um and I've come across that in lots of cases where a nutritional therapist has done a DNA test or done a training and the penny has dropped about themselves Yeah. because there's this new piece of information and they kind of like, I didn't see it until now. I was just missing it. It was right in front of me, but I just hadn't, hadn't noticed it. Um, so I think that's a really key thing, um, but zinc's quite easy to fix. I mean, it it might have it might have been a temporary thing, but I don't think it was. Um, I think it was made worse again by the cycle of anti nutrients alcohol. You know, even having a glass of wine with your salad, in terms of what goes with what, alcohol blocks folate absorption. Mm-hmm. So you know ladies who lunch who have their nice healthy salad with with a little bit of wine it might just be contradicting the 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 good stuff they think they're having in that in that single experience sad to say um but but yeah i think anti-nutrients are a, a big topic um and that absolutely could have been a factor so and and immunity it i look back and go gosh Actually, if I'd known what I know now about low zinc, I would have been even more horrified than than I was. I think I was just curious at the time. It was like, oh, okay, well, that's something I need to fix then. I'll do that Um, for this reason, let alone all the other things. Um, So, yeah. And then what I think is a really nice thing is we often think about healthy eating as being taking away things can't have this can't have any of that anymore um and you know or can't have a drink then actually some of the nicest things um to support gabba can be really enjoyable Mm. and rosemary rosemarinic acid which is in rosemary but also lots of other mediterranean herbs and peppermint, rosemary blocks GABA from being broken down. So in other words, it helps to support it. Um, And so does lemon balm. And so people think of lemon balm as being a calming, anti-anxiety, supportive uh, herb. And it's partly its mechanism of action is to block GABA from being broken down. So it's helping provide that lovely support. And rosemary... For me, I cannot and I've never been able to walk past a rosemary plant without squeezing it and smelling it. Even before I knew this. So I just love it. And there's a a place that I run past when I go running and I can visualize it. Now there's this massive rosemary bush. And every time I go past it, I have to pull a bit of rosemary and, (laughs) and do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> your fingers. Yeah, I completely I completely understand that. I actually interviewed Eric Zelinsky, um who's a, a kind of what I consider an expert on like essential oils. And he was talking about these volatile compounds and even just the smell of them through the olfactory system can have such a profound effect on your on your well-being. And I was like, this yeah. is this makes a lot of sense because even from I don't know my mum when I was younger using essential oils just to aromatherapy around the house. I was like I felt better, specifically mm. with orange oil. And then the more you know, now I've learnt about that. The more I hear about it, I was like, this makes perfect sense. And you, you've just you've just confirmed that as well. Is is there any evidence? I mean, I don't know whether you know of any of actually smelling the oil as it. Relates to GABA production or GABA breakdown?
1: I think I've, I actually, you know, I've never questioned that. I've always thought that you're somehow absorbing the chemical by smelling it, and that you know that sometimes, as we know, you don't need a big amount of a chemical absolutely to make. make you know, it's that like homeopathy. Whatever you think of that. There are lots and lots of examples in science where a microdose of something has an effect. And then there's the whole idea of, so, you know, is it, does something have an effect Is part of it, a placebo effect? Mm. So you're expecting it to have a calming effect. So it does, your brain recognizes it, and somehow that triggers a whole set of reactions to create that effect. Who cares? Quite honestly, <laughs> yeah. You know, if it works, it works. Um, the explanation's good enough for me. There's that linking with the GABA, and I know that it it helps me. Um, I enjoy it, um, and you know, you can have oil burners and however you want to uh, experience your rosemary. Um, it's 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 good for me, so I'm sticking with it. Yeah, um,
0: I think me too. Bit of rosemary on some roasted vegetables. Mm,
1: yeah, can't exactly, go wrong. Can't exactly, go wrong. exactly, exactly. And it's in other herbs as well. So things like thyme, um, basil. A lot of the Mediterranean herbs have, have actually got the same compound in them. So herbs on everything um, helps to helps to keep you calm. So yeah. good I mean, tip there.
0: Fr- from a personal note as well when you were talking about anxiety, I used to suffer from anxiety and I don't use that word lightly, but acutely. So it was for a short period of time. And I have to say, and I couldn't pinpoint why. I don't know what was going on. Um, I didn't do any testing, but magnesium, specifically magnesium glycinate was an absolute game changer. And I'm not saying that'll work for everyone, but for me, that seemed to be the bottleneck in terms of actual perhaps GABA production, perhaps another mechanism. I don't know. Huge, hugely beneficial. During that time. That
1: makes, yeah. uh, It's it's the same with me that I love having Epsom salt baths and, and all of that. I, again, magnesium is one of those things that I, I feel personally, I can't have too much of really um, by any means possible. (laughs) And it, there is a very good explanation as to why that's helpful in this system, because glutamate is the excitatory neurotransmitter, the most prolific one, and GABA is the most prolific inhibitory neurotransmitter. You make GABA from glutamate, um, but if the balance is wrong and you have too much glutamate, then that's that can be... It's, it's almost like a seesaw between them. You can have too much excitation as well and excitotoxicity... Mm-hmm. Um, and magnesium breaks the circuit. So when your glutamate is too hooked into its receptor, glued in, i describe it as someone pressing the doorbell and just leaning on it. It's like the glutamate is on, the doorbell won't stop, there's no relief from from this kind of excitation. Um, magnesium breaks the circuit, so it, it turns the bell off. And it gives you that ability to do something else and come down from that that kind of hyper-excitability scenario. Um, and it also helps to convert glutamate back to glycine. Is it glycine? I can't remember. Um, glutamine, glutamine. So it helps manage your glutamate levels and to stop them being too active and too high. So well, that makes, makes perfect sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Fascinating.
0: So, I mean, it's really eye-opening now we we're, we're yeah. discussing it now cuz for me it was just looking at the clinical studies like magnesium reduces anxiety and then I, I I I just used it without actually looking at the biochemistry of like why it might work, the biological mechanisms that it interplays with, although it, you know, interplays with I think it's over 400 plus. Um Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I was just uh, about to say, because it triggered that thought that, you know, that is one place where it it has those effects, but it also helps with a gene called COMT, um, C-O-M-T, um, which breaks down dopamine, mm-hmm. for example. So again, another reason for feeling quite wired is high dopamine, Um And COMPT is a gene that breaks down dopamine and magnesium is a cofactor. So it helps that gene do that job and release or relieve you from that hyper dopamine scenario. And as you say, there are hundreds, hundreds of places where magnesium uh, is needed and works. And those are just two big ones um, in the nervous system. That
0: where it can be helpful yeah okay My, uh, yeah I've got some reading to do that's for sure <laughs> after this um so we've talked yeah. about GABA in terms of calming down the stress response and um, I, I I know you recently spoke about the stress response in a recent talk and it'd be interesting to know almost the opposite what is a healthy stress response in terms of increasing that noradrenaline um and that conversion from dopamine, because I guess, although we always focus on reducing our stress, there's people which I know don't necessarily have that get up and go mentality or, you know, have that activation of the stress response, in my opinion, to get things yeah. done. And I'd be interested yeah. to know what your opinion is, what what the story is there.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, I think a lot of times we'll talk about certain chemicals as as being bad like adrenaline or too much adrenaline and it's like all these things have have a function they're there for a reason they're part of our makeup and things are very rarely inherently totally bad or Mm. totally good and a lot of the times we'll talk about balance so you need this chemical you need adrenaline but you don't want too much of it and you don't want too little of it. It's about the right amount at the right time. And adrenaline is the survival or one of the survival chemicals, isn't it? It's the fight or flight. It's a thing that means life or death um, in terms of being able to summon that adrenaline when it's needed um, and get your heart rate up, put some sugar in your blood and get the energy to run away from the, the lion historically um but people can have low adrenaline again because then they haven't got the raw ingredients to make it in terms of the pipe the the pathway to to synthesize adrenaline so we make dopamine first mm-hmm. dopamine gets converted to noradrenaline that is for example vitamin c and noradrenaline gets converted to adrenaline and that means a chemical called SAMe, which is a methyl donor Um, and that's part of methylation, which is a big topic in Mm nutrigenomics. So methylation is a long word that people find quite difficult to describe, Um, but basically a methyl group is a carbon and three hydrogens and methylation is about transferring that that molecule the carbon and three hydrogens from one substance to another um and the receiving substance is methylated so it's got that got that methyl group and adrenaline is methylated noradrenaline that's what it is so methylation is really important um in enabling that system to work and to provide it's a raw ingredient in the process of making adrenaline and supplying it. Um, so, and we need energy to do that. Our mitochondria have to be healthy and functioning and all of that. Um, and you know, again, to think about how substances have got a multitude of effects, we mentioned vitamin C essential nutrient for humans we can't make vitamin c so um we need vitamin c to convert dopamine to noradrenaline um we know as nutritional therapists that vitamin c is really really important as a general adrenal support nutrient Mm -hmm. when people have got fatigue for example vitamin c is one of the big things that is up there isn't it that kind of go you know or if you've got chronic fatigue or post-viral fatigue, for example, C is 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 do this partly for immune reasons. That's one aspect, but it's very supportive of um, the adrenal system, um, and it's partly to help that making adrenaline, and it's partly as an antioxidant to clean up all the the collateral damage and the debris that is generated when we're making and using energy uh, or fighting a virus or whatever else is going on. Um, but, but it's one of those really vital uh, chemicals that, that we need to support ourselves in that way. And, um, and of course on that pathway to making adrenaline, there are genes involved at every step. And some people have, Um, more or less effective genes. Um, So again, they might have small variances in those genes that mean it's just a bit more of a struggle for them to make adrenaline. It's not as efficient for them. And that can mean that, again, if on top of the gene being not so robust, if they don't have as good a supply of the Sami, the mm-hmm. methyl, um, which needs B vitamins and zinc again, and magnesium, then that's another thing that's chipping away at the the support for that process. Um, and so if you know that you've got weaker genetics in certain places, then those are the places that needs more consistent support from a nutrition perspective to make sure they're not the things that let you down, that they're not your weak points. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they are your weak points, actually. So you want to make sure that you're supporting them so they're not the places that do fail and let you down. Um, so you can be very proactive about these things if you know, um, or you might have done a genetic test because you're, ill and you're just trying to work out nothing seems to work for me what else can i do to get to the bottom of this why me yeah you know why is this affecting me more than someone else Um, and usually there are genetic aspects to that picture that can help you be more focused in terms of nutrition and lifestyle support and therefore you've got more chance of that being effective
0: that makes a lot of sense you've got my mind whirling a little bit now you know a lot of people believe that you can support a healthy being with a healthy diet and that supplements aren't necessary and i'm interested because a lot of the the kind of pathways and the genetic variants that you've you've touched upon today and that i know about i think potentially require supplementation in order to function optimally. And I'd love to get your perspective on that and your thoughts.
1: So it does depend on diet. Um, I'm a food first person um, Mm -hmm. because I think, yeah, food comes in packages. And so those packages have a blend of different nutrients that often work synergistically. Uh, And if you think about B vitamins, actually to get the most benefit from folate or B9 you need B2 you need B6, you need B3 you need B12 Um, but if you think about green leafy veg which we typically associate with folate foliage um, often those foods have B6, B2 B3 in them Um, so you're getting the package you're not just getting one, one part of it Um, So food is really important as a go-to first approach, but sometimes it's not quite enough. Um, And it might not be quite enough if you have particular genetic vulnerabilities or weaknesses and or if there have been environmental factors, so things that have happened to you or that you do, Um, that put more pressure and more demand on certain pathways and certain functions, you know? So, for example, do Olympic athletes take supplements? Well, yeah, I think most of them do these days Mm -hmm. because they're putting so much extra pressure on, on their systems. They need extra, Uh, they've got so much demand on those systems um, that, if they didn't, if they tried to do everything with food and, and they've all got nutritional therapists working with them and supporting them through food now yeah. as well. Um, but, but, but they do need extra. Does someone who isn't an Olympic athlete need extra? Well, again, they possibly do because we've all got weak points. They're just different weak points for all of us um so you know another example which i like is it affects everybody and everybody gets it these days vitamin d we need as individuals different intakes or different exposures to make vitamin d at the level that is good enough for us so you and I could have the same sun exposure, an identical diet. Um, But if you measured our vitamin D level, blood level, it would unlikely to be identical. It'd be different. Um, And that's partly because genetically there are different genes that affect how our vitamin D is transported and stored. So some people, I talk about a taxi, the (laughs) vitamin D taxi, for some people it's like a little mini cab and for other people it's a it's a it's a coach it's got different capacity in terms of its ability to transport vitamin d or maybe the doors have fallen off uh, one of the taxis, and the vitamin d is kind of lost on the journey Um, so some people really really need to consistently or more consistently support themselves with vitamin D and their environment and lifestyle might not make that, might mean that's not possible without supplementation. Um, And another aspect of vitamin D is we need our actual level to be different because we've all got receptors that respond to vitamin D in a more or less sensitive way, a bit like the GABA know what's enough for me might not be enough for you to be optimal
0: i mean this is very interesting right because we're always testing vitamin d status but this actually might not be a good predictor of how your body's utilizing
1: it exactly exactly so and especially if you use a range or you're just told it's it's fine how many how many tests do people do especially if they uh, i'm not knocking the nhs or gp service but it's for efficiency reasons it's fine don't worry about that they don't even tell you what it is mm-hmm. um actually it might not be fine for you it might be averagely fine for the average person whoever they are um yeah. but for some people a vitamin d level of 70 nanomoles per liter is okay and they might thrive and they might have a uh, Good immune responses, a robust immune system, healthy bones, um, good mood because it helps make serotonin and dopamine as well. And um, for other people, it might just be a real struggle to sense and get the benefit of that vitamin D sufficiently at that level. And their optimal might be 120. 150 even so double that's a massive factorial difference isn't it um and we can tell a lot of that by looking at vitamin d receptor variances SNPs, um and most people go yeah i'm really vulnerable to seasonal depression yes you know really obvious one you know i think most people would know i say yeah that affects me or no it doesn't Um, Well, that might be because you're more vulnerable when your vitamin D naturally does drop in the winter, that for you might dip you below what is a a, a healthy level. But for other people, they're more resilient and they can cope with that dip and it doesn't really have so much of an impact because their receptors are hearing that vitamin D in a really kind of well-tuned, sensitive way. And so... They're just coasting through it and it's not really having that effect, the dip. Um, so, but if you know that, you know, how many people suffer from low mood but don't really understand why, it might be something as simple as that. Might be more complex, but, you know, low-hanging fruit gets gets get these big kind of easy things, really.
0: Yeah, um, And very understand- cheap. Like yeah. correcting vitamin D status is extremely cheap to do. You know, it's not an expensive nutrient. And unfortunately, most of us are indoors and we don't see the sun, especially especially in the UK, even in this time. Exactly. It's unfortunately not sunny outside. It's overcast and quite gloomy. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, there's those things yeah. that we really, really do have to consider. You're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. And it can, you know, once you know about your vitamin D genes or the genes that impact a your levels so how good is your taxi um b how how good is your hearing how good are your vitamin d radars at picking up the signal um now once you know that you can work with it and you know that forever so you know forever but actually through winter whether you really do you know or should be taking a, a pretty robust amount of vitamin D supplement or whether you can get by with with a bit now and then mm-hmm. um, so and you can choose which supplements are most important for you on that basis as well you know I'm not an advocate of taking twenty supplements constantly I don't think that's good for us either um they have to be processed they put load on our liver and you know it's something that has to extra that our body has to do Mm -hmm. so let's let's be selective and choose the things that are going to give us the most benefit most bang for buck yeah um and one way of working yeah work one way of working that out is by understanding your genes and you know which are the things that are going to let the side down if if you don't support them um so you know I think for me, vitamin D is quite a big one. zinc is obviously a big one. Um, glutathione there are different ways of supporting glutathione. That's another aspect of genetics that's quite a biggie oxidative stress, especially in our current world um with stress, which makes oxidative stress and toxicity and all the things we're exposed to um so a lot of people would benefit from support there but to different extents mm-hmm. again i completely agree and and I, it's a you com-
0: know to, sorry go on
1: i was gonna say it's a combo isn't it it's not just your genes it's your genes and your environment and working out okay maybe i can get away with not supporting my biome all the time but if i was training for a marathon or If I was feeling really, really, really stressed or if I had COVID, for example, then that's when I'm turned to those particular sorts of supplements and give myself that extra um, to get through it and help myself recover with the least damage. Because
0: we we spoke about it before. Magnesium for me was a low hanging fruit when i suffered uh, anxiety or when, when i had this acute yeah. anxiety and um what i find is that when i go on holiday and i maybe overindulge you know i do drink alcohol so um, i might overindulge on alcohol and food which maybe isn't necessarily right for my biology or microbiome um yeah. i do tend to get anxiety or a mild form afterwards so after i've come back from holiday so you're meant to be relaxed when you're on holiday and i do feel that way but when i come back to work my stress tolerance is less Um, obviously depends on the kind of holiday but in general yes so i need to be really careful on how i support myself after i've come back from holiday so when you were saying like you have to consider your environment i'm very much aware of these things now and Christmas, a great time that I spend with my family and friends and really enjoy And but I do indulge. Um, and that yeah. leads to January, me feeling not very good.
1: <laughs> yeah, really depleted. Yes. It's kind of like the plummet after the indulgence, isn't it? But it makes so much sense. And I think, you know, when, when I said I'd, I'm i not really an advocate of taking a lots and lots of supplements together, but also the same supplement forever because you need different supports at different times. We are cyclical beings as well. You know, the circadian rhythm, the seasons. Um, we're meant to actually have fluctuations in in our, our biochemistry. Yes. Um, and we're meant to be able to adapt to that and our bodies are brilliant at adapting to that and that's what receptors are for on the whole receptors sense how much of this chemical is there um you know what should i be doing to compensate for that kind of balance balance the, the seesaw type of thing but i think having that awareness as well that you've talked about I've been on holiday. That should be good for me. I should feel refreshed. Yeah. But actually, in another way, it's depleted these aspects. Okay, well, let let me fill them in then, kind of, you know, have the holiday recovery supplements, <laughs> you know. Yeah, or
0: just, yeah. You, or just be aware. I mean, I, I know I can. Yeah. I like even, I wish I had that knowledge when I was younger from when I was experiencing those dips to understand why they were occurring. And maybe my friends had more resilience to whatever it was, alcohol or eating cake or that kebab on the weekends that I maybe yeah. didn't have resilience to, right? And it's just acknowledging that and knowing it. But, you know, I think we're constantly yeah. learning in this field, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, is ageing, which we are all ageing. Um, the things that you could get away with uh, when you're younger, you can't get away with as, as much when you're older because your body's not as good at recovering. Mm -hmm. So you might need a little more extra help. Um, And there might be things that were weak points for you all along, but you never really had any awareness of them because they weren't a problem when you were younger. Um, uh, But, you know, actually, you do have an option to support those weak points if only you know about them. And it's better to know about them in a proactive way than find out the hard way when something goes wrong. Um, so preempting things and supporting them in that proactive way is an option and the genetics can help facilitate that option
0: couldn't agree more um for the listeners i know we spoke about some foods and some specific nutrients but what i will do in the show notes is list um some foods which are very high in zinc magnesium and b complex vitamins so if people want to have a look there you can i ask three questions to everyone that comes on the show um at the end and i've not shared these with you beforehand so please take your time when answering (laughs) them (laughs) i'm scared now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is the most impactful health change that you've made in your life and why?
1: Oh, gosh. Wow. Well, so it isn't nutrition, actually. It's, so I've always run. And I mentioned that I was like a hyper, yeah. about it, hyper competitive. And I almost would get anxiety if I thought I wouldn't be able to run at least every other day. Because it was like my thing, and now i I've completely changed my approach to running, and I would say I do mindful running. So I'm loads slower. I I never I don't have any tech actually, apart from I've, I've got a, a Apple Watch. I don't have headphones. I just go out, and I if I'm in a park, I look I look for parks, I look for water. So often I run along waterways because mm-hmm. you don't have to stop the traffic. You don't have to really think and make decisions about where you're going. You're just going. And I think that my method and my approach to running now is genuinely therapeutic and good for me and calms me. Um, whereas before it was actually reinforcing a lot of the hyper Kind of activity that I had. Um, So that's probably the biggest thing. I still do it, and I hope I always have that that kind of that particular thing, that aspect of health to to do. But I've changed the way I do it. So
0: that makes that makes perfect sense. And I'm glad that you've uh, nurtured that relationship that you had with running. I
1: have yeah yeah and I don't I mean I've, I've done marathons and races and things like that in my time and I'm kind of glad that I've done them but I'm done with it I don't I don't need to prove it I don't for me I don't need to prove that I can do a fast marathon probably isn't fast in other people's eyes but I've done what I felt I wanted to do and now I'm just enjoying it in the moment for what it is um so yeah
0: brilliant the second question is how can healthcare and guidelines become integrated with the kind of modalities that we spoke about today
1: so it is interesting that in the UK um there is a, the UK has a really great history in terms of genomics and 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 their kind of research and investment in genomics, actually. And you know that because your history is you've worked in organisations that specialise in that. Um, So I think, you know, we do have an amazing history to be really, really proud of. And the NHS is doing a lot of work um, in genomics. However, their focus at the moment, you know, they can't do everything. It's such a big, big science so their focus is rare disease um, and also cancer is another aspect of genomics that they focus on. They're not really doing nutrient genomics. Um, and I doubt that that will be a focus anytime soon because nutrition has not been a focus and it's, you know been a struggle to try and ease that into the kind of medical world, hasn't it? um but i I do think i think- I think there's good and bad in everything, and there are there is there's a focus on some things there was a news article out today of cholesterol and a drug that is gonna change the way a gene processes or makes cholesterol and My initial kind of response to that was not sure I like the sound of it um <laughs> you know so yeah. so i'm i'm quite i'm whenever I see um a a news article and it talks about genetics I'm naturally drawn to it, but there are so many dimensions to genetics and genomics um and some of it we're going to agree with some of it is amazing and it's life changing at um at a are very focused on one individual level, um, but I think I think I think it will naturally become part of healthcare. I would say, maybe in twenty years, everybody will probably have their whole genome sequenced, um, possibly just as an NHS or, or standard thing um and then that will give us enormous potential to do what we want to do with that information but you know that is just the bottom of the cake and we need to work out what we want to do with that information and there's lots of ethics around that as well as um as well as research and as well as um information um but i just love the nutrigenomics part of it because i think it isn't scary, it's not it's it's genuinely positive and empowering. Um but yeah, I th- will it I think it, it it will be part of everyone's lives. Um but there's an awful lot of ethical questions that need to be answered as that journey progresses. Um you know, Gattaca. I don't know if you remember that or you're too young. Um, It's a film um, about how everyone is genetically tested and only certain people are allowed to do certain jobs. Like if you want to go to space, you have to be of certain genetic quality. Um, Otherwise, you're not allowed. Um, So, I mean, that's a horrible future kind of nightmare vision. But you can imagine... without what without rules and and ethical considerations things could go wrong um but i do think nutrigenomics is a relatively safe space um from that perspective you know so someone knows about my gene. hey i can support it i'm supporting it yeah (laughs)
0: yeah exactly and arguably if you know about it then you're more empowered than the person who's maybe not tested and doesn't know Um, yeah so yeah yeah exactly
1: yeah so i think it will get there it will get there but it has to be done carefully and doing it too quickly could be could be dangerous it needs to go through at, at a steady pace with all those wider considerations
0: Emma, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I have one question left to ask, but before I ask it, uh, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, so I, um, I manage a company called LifeCode GX. So we specialize in nutrigenomics testing. And uh, there are a whole selection of different tests that you can do including a core test we call it nutrient core and that looks at things like vitamin d for example vitamin d vitamin c and whether you might be intolerant to certain foods um also genes to do with circadian rhythm for example so that's a really 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 good foundation panel that i think everybody would find interesting and get some benefit from um so you can find me at lifecodegx.com and information about what we do. And we also do a lot of education and information sharing around nutrigenomics because it is a new science um, like everything, there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. So we're trying to present this in a meaningful way to people. What does it mean to you actually? not in an abstract way, but in a real-life way. How is it going to change what you eat, how you behave? Um, how is it going to make you feel better and be healthier? Um, so we have a channel on a platform called Crowdcast. And that's, uh, again, if you search for Life KGX, and we've got loads and loads of videos, and we do lives on there as well. And you can link to that from our website, lifecogex.com. So you could almost think of lots of topics, a bit like Ben does with his podcasts. We have lots of different topics and we have guests on there as well talking about their particular experiences of using Nutri-Genomics either as a practitioner or as a, a client. Um, so check that out. Um, I promise you... You will find something that grabs you on there and um, look out for the new things as well. So we've got a new thing coming up called Beyond Oestrogen, which is about hormones in a bigger way and hormones in context rather than just zoning in on one thing. Um, But yeah, website is the go-to that you can connect to everything else from there.
0: Brilliant. I'll put all the links and resources that you've mentioned in the show notes. Thank you. Last question, Emma. Can you please provide the listeners, and I know you've provided many tips already, but with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today?
1: Okay, so I would say there are, there are top genes um, that you should know about everybody would benefit from just knowing what their genotype is. Um, But you can also tell a lot, and this might seem really odd, but um, you can tell a lot without even testing. So there are certain genotypes that you can tell that people from certain ethnic groups are more or less likely to be able to to perform certain functions. So for example, lactose intolerance, you could test a gene that looks at whether you're intolerant to lactose, but you could also uh, be aware of your family history. Where are you from? Where where are your parents from? Look at those aspects as well. And you can get an awful lot of, of benefit and information from just understanding your family history and your cultural history um we did a really um uh interesting piece of research it just popped up um this is a new thing to me that there is a gene that affects how well we taste um spicy food right and you just think oh isn't that one of those novelty genes that you know people throw out there and get a quick click Baked from um, but a version of this gene is much more common in, um, in geographies where there is more chilli, there is more wasabi and those sorts of foods but that same gene is involved in pain tolerance mm-hmm. um, and so actually if you have a better tolerance to spicy food and you don't get such a kind of burn or heat from it you also have a better pain tolerance. What? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that's all linked in with inflammation as well. It's not just the perception, it's the actual inflammation. And so what we find quite often is you look at one gene and it might look like it's, okay, not very exciting, but you can dig into the gene and a gene has many characters and it's got many reaches and many functions Um, So I would say, if I was starting out, do a nutrient core test um, and you will will understand it. It won't baffle you. It will give you some really, really nice insights into you that are actionable and that can give you some pretty rapid improvements. And there will be some things that don't surprise you. And you'll be like, I knew that, all (laughs) right. always thought that and now I know it um and there'll be some things that do surprise you um which you probably would never have guessed but once you know them you'll be able to make some changes and make some improvements and get those benefits so that would be my my thing self-knowledge is power
0: brilliant love it Emma, it has been wonderful speaking with you. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I do hope that we can do this again soon.
1: Thank you, Ben. It's been my pleasure too.
0: Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.